Today's Bible reading is from John chapter 19, verses 28 to 37. John 19, 38, uh, sorry, 28 to 37. Hear now God's word. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Morning friends. Uh, if we've not met, my name's Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I get the privilege of unpacking that passage with us this morning. If you are visiting with us and you don't have a Bible of your own, there are Bibles on the little black trolley at the back there. I promise this is going to go better for you if you have a Bible in front of you. And you can also take that home uh, as our gift to you uh, if you don't have a Bible at home to read for yourself. I'm going to pray because I need God's help and um, then we're going to dive in. Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we come to this climactic moment, not in just in John's gospel, but in all of human history, we ask that you would open our eyes and show us wonderful things from your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start uh, by giving you some figures. Uh, dream start to a sermon for all the accountants in the room, the rest of you are not so sure, but just hang in there, this will make sense in a moment. So, figures, okay, I've got five figures they're all related and they all refer to the frequency of something that occurred in Australia last year. So see if you can figure out what I'm talking about. Here's the five figures. 190,775, that's the first figure. 15,898 is the second figure. 3,669 is the third figure. 523 is the fourth figure and 22 is the fifth figure. I'll give you some help. The first figure is annual, the second figure monthly, third figure weekly, fourth figure daily, fifth figure hourly. 190,775 is the number of people who died in Australia last year. That's 15,898 a month, 3,669 a week, 523 a day, and 22 an hour. So if you've ever seen uh, the Hunger Games, you'll know that whenever a tribute dies, a cannon goes off. So if you've not seen Hunger Games, it's a movie that's set in a world with 12 districts, all ruled by one capital. And every year, the capital puts on these games, these Hunger Games, and each district has to select one boy and one girl to go and represent their district in the Hunger Games where, for the entertainment of the rich, the weak battle it out to the death with only one survivor. Every time a tribute dies, a cannon goes off. Boom. Last year, if a cannon went off every time a person in Australia 
alone, so this is, this is not the world, this is just Australia, every time a person in Australia died, you would have heard the cannon about once every two minutes and 40 seconds. In his book, Remember Death, which I've mentioned before, Matt McCullough invites his readers to imagine what the world is going to look like one week after your cannon has gone off. I want you to do that. I know it's not very pleasant, but bear with me, this will be good for your soul. Imagine what the world is going to look like one week after you've died. Can you picture it? What do you see? Can you see family and friends? Are they crying? Are they laughing? Not, not because you're dead, but are they laughing because they're thinking about you, you know, reminiscing about good times, happy memories? Do you see a husband or wife? You see your children? Are they struggling to come to terms what life now looks like without you? Or maybe you see your new replacement in the office, the new owner of your car, the new renter of your house, the black armbands on your footy team, bags of clothes perhaps, at your, bags of your clothes down at the salvos. What, what is it that you see? Now consider this, that it does not matter what you see actually. Because as McCullough points out, the reality is, whatever you see, you're still the one seeing. When you try to imagine yourself as dead, he says, you're still there, still surviving as the spectator. But the problem, of course, is that you're not there because you're dead. And so he quotes Sigmund Freud, who said that even when we're thinking about death, fundamentally, no one actually believes in his own death. And so it's a little wonder that death makes us feel uncomfortable. I don't want to feel uncomfortable, you don't want to feel uncomfortable and so what we've done is we've set up a world, a culture, we've put things in place that have enabled us to functionally go through life without ever really having to think about death. McCullough gives a bunch of examples, I'm going to summarise three. To begin with, he points to the fact that, that where we die has changed. See, in the past, the place where death happened was the place where life happened. Previously, you didn't go off into some institution like a hospital or a nursing home or a palliative care unit to die. No, the predominant place where people died was in the home. And that meant that everyone basically grew up around some measure of death. It was normal for people, including kids, to see and hear and smell death in all its fullness because, you see, it was normal to see your grandparents and then maybe your parents, and then maybe some siblings along the way, die at home. But when death gets removed from the place where we live, death gets removed from our consciousness. It's not that fewer people are dying, it's just that fewer of us are seeing people dying. What's more, you've got advancements in modern medicine. Now, don't misunderstand, it's not that modern medicine is bad, it's great that we can now treat uh, uh, and cure a whole range of diseases that previously we couldn't treat and cure. But the problem is it's actually started to give us unrealistic expectations. So, so McCullough says it's almost like we've taken two categories, the category of disease and the category of death, and we started to merge them together in, their in our minds, making them one, but they're not one. Think about it, you can be cured of cancer, you can't be cured of death. Modern medicine can make you live longer. It can't make you live forever. That we can now treat a whole range of diseases through modern medicine has blinded us to the fact that no one gets out of life alive. In the end, death comes to all of us. And then thirdly, our denial of death is heightened by how we talk, or perhaps more accurately, don't really talk about death. You've noticed this. Um, back when my grandmother was alive, um, she went to visit my brother in Albury, Wodonga. He had three kids at the time, they were all fairly young, and his son, Zach, was in early primary school, and it must have been around the, the time of um, Sun Awareness Week. So every day he's going off to school, he's getting drilled into him the importance of slip, slop, slap, slip, slop, slack. And he gets, slap rather, he gets home, my grandmother's there, so this is his great-grandmother, and, and he's, <laughs> he says to her, Grandma Joan, 
your face wouldn't look like that if you'd worn a hat. <laughs> I can still remember my grandma laughing as she told us this story, but now think about it. All of us, of course, would have instincts in a moment like that to say, hey, mate, it's not just that the Grandma Joan hasn't worn a hat, she's getting old. But think about it. My grandma wasn't on a train to some exotic destination called old age. She was living in this world where every single one of us has rebelled against the God who made us and loves us. God who is the source of life and love and all good things and the wages of our sin, what our sin earns us is death. But even though that's true, we think that's too heavy. And so we don't even talk about it together as adults, let alone with children. And so we settle for grandma's getting old. Nine years ago, my dad died of bowel cancer. He was diagnosed in April, he died in July. And over those three months, he had lots of people come and visit him, which was lovely. Of course, the unspoken reality is they're all coming to say goodbye. But one of the, the strange aspects, kind of dynamic that happened at the time was that almost no one, I was staying with him at the time, almost no one mentioned the fact that he was dying. You see, if you go through life denying the reality of death, it's not surprising that you then don't know how to talk about without seeming weird or impolite or insensitive with death, when death actually comes. And funeral directors know this, that they have mastered the art of dancing around death. You've got all these what, 101 ways to talk about death without actually ever mentioning death. McCullough says, listen to this, for the funeral director, the corpse is not a corpse, it's not even a body, it's Mr. Fill-in-the-blank, or at least the loved one. Funeral directors, not undertakers, oversee the planning of services, not funerals, after which the deceased, not the dead, who have expired, not died, are interred, not buried, in memorial parks, not, not graveyards. The central thing that's happening in this passage is the death of Jesus. We are not going to be able to see how wonderful this passage is, and it's wonderful, without in some measure thinking about death, both his death and ours. Just look at the passage, notice how John wants you to see that Jesus' death was real, that he really did die. Verse 30, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's a shorthand way of saying he died. Verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. Verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once came out blood and water. I'll explain that in a moment, but he's emphasizing the fact that he was dead. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. And by believe, John doesn't just mean that you would believe that Jesus physically died, though it includes that. He means that you would see that through his real death, Jesus was providing for us redemption, forgiveness, deliverance from the problem of our sin and death so that we could have life. You know, there are seven sayings from Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels that come from the cross. John's aware of all of them. We know that because he's standing. Think back to last week. Um, Woman, behold your son. Um, son, behold your, your mother. Uh, he's standing right there at the foot of the cross, so he knows all seven, and yet he records just three of them. This morning, we come to the last of them. It is finished. What's more, John has a whole range of Old Testament passages that he knows of that are being fulfilled in this particular moment. But again, he records just three of them. That means that we need to pay careful attention to what he's actually chosen to record. We have to pay careful attention to what he has selected because that's the key to understanding what he wants us to see in the death of Jesus. So if you look over the passage, you'll notice that the realness of Jesus' death is emphasised in verses 31 to 35. But that's then bracketed notice by particular scriptures that are being 
fulfilled or references to particular scriptures being fulfilled. So look at verse 28, the first verse, Jesus said to fulfill scripture. Then look down at the end of the passage, verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he mentions two particular scriptures. So if I'm reading this passage right, I think the movement goes something like this. John begins by emphasizing that in the death of Jesus, the saving redemptive plans are being accomplished. So God's saving and redeeming plans are being accomplished. So he starts by talking about the redemptive aspects of Jesus' death. And that leads him then to thinking about the real historical circumstances that happened around his death. But then he starts to think about that and he moves right back to the redemptive plans of God through the death of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning, I just want to walk us through the passage, noticing those movements, those, those three movements, Jesus' Jesus's death was redemptive, it was real, and then back to how it was redemptive, and then we'll finish with a couple of implications for us. Make sense? Okay. Someone said yes, so I'm moving on. Let me set the scene and walk us through the passage. So look at verse 28. When John says, after this, he's obviously referring back to everything that's come before. So we know that the night before, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested by the authorities. He was then uh, brought before a kangaroo court. He was sentenced to execution by crucifixion by the pragmatic Pilate. And then he was led from Pilate's headquarters out to a hill called Golgotha where they crucified him. So by the time we get to verse 28 of chapter 19, you need to know Jesus has been on the cross for hours. Martin Hengel, in his book, Crucifixion in the Ancient World, gives 10 summary points about the ancient practice of crucifixion. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you 10 points, but I do want to summarize three things about crucifixion, because I think it will help us to see what John actually wants us to notice in this moment. Okay, so here's three things about the ancient practice of crucifixion. Number one, crucifixion was common. So common, in fact, that when Rome came into power in 63 BC, some historians say they crucified as many as 30,000 people. That's more than the entire population of Qumran. Think back to last week. Uh, John tells us that as Jesus has been crucified, he's been crucified between two others. Why? Well, in part, the answer is because crucifixion was so common. That means that the meaning of Jesus' death can't simply be discovered by focusing on the mode of his death. Number two, crucifixion was a caution. See, the main purpose of a crucifixion was to scare the living daylights out of everybody else so that they would never dream of doing whatever that person had done to lead them to hanging on a cross. That's why crucifixions were always public and carried out in very prominent places, highly visible places. Now, of course, Rome had other means to deter people from crime and rebellion against the empire, like putting on games where they would feed rebels to wild beasts, but that required a bit more organisation. You had to have an amphitheatre and a, and a crowd. But a cross, you could place with minimal fuss beside a busy road, imagine the M1, or a prominent intersection like the modern-day equivalent of a busy roundabout. You see, it's no accident that during this Passover week where literally tens of thousands of people ascend up to Jerusalem, there's Jesus hanging on a cross on a hill called Golgotha with his crime nailed above his head, King of the Jews. Hengel writes, the chief reason for its use was its supreme efficacy as a deterrent. Number three, crucifixion was cruel. It was so cruel, in fact, that generally speaking, Rome didn't crucify its citizens. They wouldn't do that to its own people. And when you look back through history, it's interesting, even secular writers from the first century, so accustomed with the barbaric practices of the Roman Empire, don't really go into much detail about crucifixions. It's almost like the sound of their silence is saying that the whole thing is just too horrible for me to write about and too horrific for you to think about. Crucifixions involved all kinds of horrible things. We've heard some of it the last couple of weeks. Severe beatings, 
scourgings or scourgings that were so bad it could cause the person to go into hypovolemic shock where so much blood was lost that their heart would kick into overdrive to compensate they'd go into shock and then they could collapse or even die that may be why simon of cyrene had to carry jesus's cross but for the purposes of what's happening in this passage the most important thing to remember is that the crescendo of the cruelty happened as the person would suffocate under the pressure of their own weight. So remember last week, Darren mentioned that as time went on, the person's body on the cross would weaken, their shoulders would slump, their lungs would collapse, and they'd become unable to breathe. And so they push themselves up with their legs, pull themselves with their arms, take a breath and then slouch back down and then push themselves up with their legs and with their pull with their arms, take another breath and then slouch back down and they push and pull and push and pull and gasp for breath until finally they weren't physically able to push or pull anymore and eventually they'd suffocate under their own weight. Now, with all that in mind, look again at the passage in fact, go back up to last week's passage, look at verse 18 of chapter 19. And notice that all John said about Jesus' crucifixion was this, there they crucified him, that's it. And now in this morning's passage, as he records the death of Jesus in verses 28 to 30, there's no mention of asphyxiation or suffocation or hypovolemic shock or any of the physical horrors that surround the cross because you are not going to see the meaning of his death by simply focusing on the mode of his death. There are though, notice, three mentions of something being finished or fulfilled. And in the Greek, those words, so look at verse 28, finished, verse 28 again, fulfilled, and then verse 30, finished, all those words come from the same Greek word or the same root uh, in the Greek which means just to complete something or to accomplish something. And the point I think John is making is twofold. You see, as Jesus dies by crucifixion, he wants us to see first that everything that's happening here is happening according to a plan. And second, everyone else is ignorant. They are unaware of the plan, except for Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 28. John tells us, Jesus said, I thirst. But notice carefully, John inserts that the reason Jesus said this was to fulfill Scripture. Now, don't misunderstand, it's not that Jesus isn't thirsty. He's a real person. This is real history. He's not acting in front of Mel Gibson's cameras like Jim Caviezel. This really happened. He's been hanging naked and bloody and exposed under the hot Near Eastern sun for hours. So, of course, he's thirsty. But the point John wants you to know is that there is something more in Jesus' consciousness than just the mere quenching of his thirst when he said, I thirst. And that something more is not, notice, in the consciousness of the soldiers who are guarding the cross. So they hear Jesus say, I thirst. And then verse 29, they take a sponge, they plunge it in, some, in a jar of sour wine, which was a common drink for them. This wasn't sedative. So it's not like the wine mixed with myrrh that was offered to Jesus on his way to the cross. This would not extinguish his pain. It would, if anything, extend it. They put it on a hyssop branch they hold it to Jesus' mouth and he drinks. But they are unaware that there is something more happening here. That even pinned to a cross, Jesus' words lead them to help him fulfill Psalm 69. 
Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. There is, I think, a little lesson here for us. Don't be too quick to assume that you know exactly or exhaustively what God is doing in your life, especially in your pain, in your cancer, in your cancelled plans, in your childlessness, in your death of a loved one, in your unwanted singleness, your marriage difficulties, your stress at work, your daily battles with anxieties and your frustrations as a mum. You only have to look at this thing, you only have to look at the cross and notice the ignorance of the soldiers to know that God is always doing more than we can see or understand. Friend, if your trust is in Jesus, even the smallest details of the hardest things in your life are part of His design to save you and to redeem you, and to bring about the good plans He has for you. Now, it's hard, I think, to know exactly why John chooses to record this passage as the final passage that Jesus intentionally fulfilled right before His death. I don't think it's because the fulfilment of this passage is particularly spectacular. Now, as if this is Jesus' theological equivalent to the last 30 seconds of the fireworks that happen over the Sydney Harbour Bridge on a New Year's Eve. I don't think it's that. I mean, the details seem, don't they? They seem so small, almost inconsequential. They gave me sour wine to drink. But maybe that's the point. Maybe John is simply telling us that when it came to accomplishing God's redemptive plan, Jesus left nothing unaccomplished, not even a drink of water or sour wine. That's, I think, why, verse 30, it was when Jesus had received the sour wine. So, it was at that point, He said, it is finished. Now, I have to think carefully here. If you look back up at verse 28, so look at verse 28, that's the first time we're told of this word finished. So John tells us there that Jesus knew that all was now finished. Now when you think about it, that cannot mean that He'd finished everything He'd come to earth to accomplish. We know that because the very next verse, He says something which is designed to lead to the fulfillment which at that point was left unfulfilled. So it must mean something like, Everything in God's plan that led to Jesus to that being at that point had been, in that moment, accomplished. So, how are we to understand Jesus' cry of victory in verse 30 when He said, it is finished? Well, it can't mean that there's nothing more to God's plans. After all, Jesus hasn't been raised. He hasn't ascended. He hasn't poured out the Spirit. He hasn't returned to judge the living and the dead. He hasn't ushered in the new heavens and the new earth. But He has, at this point, accomplished the work that the Father sent Him into the world to do. He has fulfilled the Scriptures. He has lived in perfect obedience to God's law, living the perfect life that we haven't lived, earning for us a righteousness that we need, absorbing for us in His person, the right wrath of God against our sin so that we might have our greatest need met, our sin, the wages of which are death atoned for, paid in full, and the hope of life with Him in a whole new world. Here's what one commentator says, to understand the significance of these words, it is finished, we need to remember that in Matthew and Mark, the offer of sour wine followed, that is, it came after Jesus' cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that signaled that he was bearing in his own person the awful consequences of human sin. 
When Jesus said, it is finished, he was referring to the great work of redemption. Jesus had finished the work he came to do. He had given his flesh for the life of the world, John 6, 51. As the good shepherd, he had laid down his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. He had become the one man who died for the nation, John eleven fifty. He was the seed that would fall to the ground and produce many seeds, John 12, 24. And he showed the love that was greater than any other, laying down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. Jesus' death was the fulfillment the accomplishment of God's redemptive plan. His death was redemptive. But of course, in order for it to be redemptive, it had to be real, it actually had to happen. And so notice that John now goes on to, to highlight the realness of Jesus' death, that this really happened, he really did die. And so he starts, if you look at verse 31, by telling us that it was the day of preparation. Now, don't let that trip you up, this is not the day of preparation for the Passover, this is the day of preparation for the Sabbath that fell the week of the Passover. So the Jews' Sabbath would happen on a Saturday, uh, but the day before they would do preparations that would enable them to rest on their Sabbath day, on the Saturday. So this is Friday. It's probably about three o'clock in the afternoon, and the Jewish religious leaders are getting anxious. You see, the Jews didn't crucify people. In the Old Testament, God's law prescribed, if there was ever a need for capital punishment, God's law prescribed that the primary method would be stoning. And on some occasions, they would take a stoned person and they would hang them on a tree to show that this person had died under the curse of God. And to be a bit like crucifixion, to be a caution, a warning sign to everybody else not to do what that person had done. But, but their law also said that they couldn't leave the body there overnight. They had to come and take it down and remove the body and bury it before nightfall, otherwise the land would become defiled. You can read about that if you're interested in Deuteronomy 21. So, the Jewish religious leaders, notice verse 31, they ask Pilate to break the legs of Jesus and the two others being crucified. What's going on? Well, remember, when a person died by crucifixion, their bodies would weaken, their shoulders would slump, their lungs would collapse, and they become unable to breathe. And so they push with their legs and pull with their arms and take another breath and then fall back down. And then push with their legs and pull with their arms, take another breath and then fall back down. You don't have to be a gym junkie to know that squats are easier than pull-ups. So, break the legs of a person being crucified and all they have is an excruciating form of pull-up. Fatigue sets in faster, death by suffocation happens quicker. So you see the Jewish religious leaders thinking something like this, go Pilate, break their legs so that death comes quicker, that way the land's not going to get defiled and we can get on with our preparations and everyone's happy. But when the soldiers get to the cross of Jesus, notice verse 34, they see that he's already dead and so, 33 rather, and so verse 34, they don't break his legs but they do kind of jab him with a spear, they thrust a spear into his side to make sure that he's dead and as the spear is pulled out, out comes a mixture of blood and water. Now, commentators will point out that medical experts say that one of two things is happening here. Either the spear went into the side of Jesus, right up into his ribcage and pierced his heart. In that case, the blood would be blood from his heart and the fluid would be fluid from the pericardial sac that surrounds the heart. Or, and I think maybe more likely, but I don't really know, but we know that if a person is severely beaten around the chest and the chest cavity doesn't get punctured, what happens is internal hemorrhaging. So, so fluid builds up between uh, the, the lining of the rib cage and the lining of the lungs. And when the person dies, the fluid separates. The darker, bloodier fluid settles on the bottom. The lighter, kind of more translucent fluid settles on the top. You pierce a person's side up into the ribcage and out would flow blood and water. Whatever the point is, John's clearly emphasising that he wants us to know that Jesus really did die. And the question, I think, is, is why? 
why does he, he's Christ undergone crucifixion, why does he feel the need to emphasize that Jesus' death really happened? Almost no one survived crucifixion. I say almost no one because as far as I know, there's like one example in history. It comes from a Jewish historian named Josephus. And what happened is he had three acquaintances that were crucified. He was very troubled by it, so he went to the emperor, he's a position of power, he went to the emperor, he pleaded their case, the emperor Titus uh, uh, reversed the charge, they went, they got the three guys down from the cross, gave them the best of medical care, two of them still died, one of them survived. Apart from that, I know no other example of a person surviving crucifixion in the ancient world. It's like zero. So why would John feel the need to emphasize not just that Jesus was crucified, but that the crucifixion really worked, that he really did die. I mean, um, I, I mentioned earlier that nine years ago, my dad died of cancer. He died at home, so privately, uh, surrounded by a handful of, less than a handful of a family, not in front of hundreds publicly. And think about it, way more people survive cancer than crucifixion. And yet when I told you about his death, I'm betting that, there, I'm not a betting man, but I'm guessing, I'm guessing that there wasn't a single sceptic in the room. None of you thought, no way. That didn't really happen. There has to be some other explanation for what you're talking about. The year before my dad died, I was in the States doing some study and I remember one Sunday evening, the guy who I was studying under told us a, a story about Homer, not the Simpsons type, but the uh, ancient Greek philosopher type. And he said that in one point in his works, Homer gives this interesting story of a fox traveling along a forest path, winding in and out between the trees. And eventually the, the, the fox comes to this dark cave where he sees that there are many footprints going in but they're all going in one direction. And then from the darkness of the cave comes a voice saying, come in here. In response, the fox says, no. I see many footprints going in, but none coming out. I don't want to go in. Then he said to us, this is a picture of death. Marching generations respond to the call to go in, but no one ever comes out. All along, the great leaders, kings and dictators and religious leaders and wise men and prophets all meekly enter. Buddha enters. Muhammad and Confucius go in. But no one ever comes out. See, John's emphasizing here that Jesus really did die. And then notice in the next passage, verses 38 to 42 of John chapter 19, he'll emphasize that he really was buried because in the passage following that, chapter 20, he's going to emphasize that he really did come out. That's why I think John is so emphatic in verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. But notice, as soon as he recalls to mind the real historical events that surround the death of Jesus, so the, the unbroken legs, the pierced side, he wants to lead us right back to thinking about the redemptive purposes of God through the death of Jesus. Look at verse 36. These things took place, and by these things he means the unbroken legs, the spear-pierced side. These things happened that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And he quotes two Old Testament passages. The first is Exodus 12, which we read earlier. The second is Zechariah chapter 12. In Exodus 12, God told Moses that he's going to redeem Israel out from Egyptian slavery and lead them to the promised land of Canaan. But in preparation, he sent 10 plagues of judgment upon the Egyptians. And the last plague was death. The angel of death would come through the land and take the lives of all the firstborns, but he told Moses to tell the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb around the door frames of their homes as a sign. And when the angel of death went through the land, he would see the sign 
and pass over their homes and they would be spared God's judgment of death. And one of the features of the Passover lamb, did you realize earlier, did you notice this earlier, was that none of its bones could be broken. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. John is saying that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Sacrificed during the atonement to, avert, to, to um, during the Passover rather, to avert the wrath of God by dying in the place of all of those who would trust in Him, and He will lead them to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. In Zechariah 12, God speaks 500 years before the coming of Jesus, and He foretells of a day when there will be a shepherd who gets struck, who who gets pierced. But in some kind of mysterious way, that the prophet says that when this, the shepherd gets pierced, God himself will be pierced. And then people will look upon the shepherd and mourn in deep contrition and repentance for their sin. And through his death, God will open up a floodgate for them of forgiveness and cleansing. Listen to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. John saying, that the one on the cross with the spear-pierced side is that good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, opening up a floodgate of grace and mercy and forgiveness and cleansing. The real, historical, bodily death of Jesus was the fulfillment of God's redemptive plans and purposes to save a people for himself. Redemptive, real, redemptive. I want to finish by drawing out two implications. First, the implication of what this passage teaches us about the nature of Christian salvation. This is wonderful. Have you, have you ever stopped to think much, to meditate upon those words, it is finished? No other religious leader or religion teaches anything like this. Basically, every other religion will teach something like this. You must do, 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 do. That is, you must earn your own righteousness through your own law-keeping and then bring it to God and then maybe He might accept you. Only Christianity teaches that Christ fulfilled the law, that He earned a righteousness that we could not, then gave up His life on the cross to pay for our unrighteousness and then gifts us His own righteousness so that we could be forgiven and free and have eternal life. Some of you might remember the old um, Cadbury's favourites ad. I don't know if they still run it, but it was a, an ad set in a supermarket where there's a couple uh, and they're talking to a friend, they bump into them in the, the supermarket and the friend says, I'll see you tonight. And then turns and starts to walk away. But then she gets a couple of metres away and she turns back and says, oh, by the way, don't bring anything. And, and the husband's like, sweet. And the wife hits him and she says, we have to bring something. And so she turns, she grabs a box of favourites off the shelf. Remember the, ca the catchphrase, favourites? What to bring when you're told not to bring anything. I think, spiritually speaking, we're all a bit like the wife of the Cadbury Favourites ad. We think that if we're going to be saved, if we're really going to be accepted by God, okay with God, then we have to contribute something and we've all got our favorites our bible reading our prayers our giving our parenting our pastoring our purity our non-partying and slowly but surely what happens is that the natural inclin inclination of our hearts is to look more at ourselves and our works than we do at jesus and his finished work and it kills our joy and destroys our assurance now, don't misunderstand, it's not that good works are unimportant. 
There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Christian obedience is a necessary evidence of real saving faith. But when it comes to the grounds of our salvation, the basis of our right standing before God, we cannot and must not seek to add our imperfect works to the perfect finished work of Jesus. If you seek to add your work to his work, you are in essence not adding to it, you are subtracting from it. You are saying in essence that there is something deficient about his work. Our right standing with God rests solely upon a finished work that is not our own. Friends, that's one of the reasons why our corporate gatherings like this are, in essence, a corporate exercise in looking away from ourselves to the finished work of Jesus. Do you notice that in the service this morning? Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Behold the Son of God who takes away our sin. We believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the work of Jesus. Death was once my great opponent, fear once had a hold on me, but the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. J.C. Ryle once wrote, One comfortable thought stands out most clearly on the face of this famous expression, it is finished. We rest our souls on a finished work if we rest them on the work of Jesus Christ the Lord. We need not fear that either sin or Satan or law shall condemn us at the last day. We may lean back on the thought that we have a Saviour who has done all, paid all, accomplished all, performed all that is necessary for our salvation. We may take up the challenge of the Apostle Paul, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. When we look at our own works, we may be ashamed of their imperfections, but when we look at the finished work of Christ, we may feel peace. We are complete in Him, if we believe. Do you know, there's only one other time in the New Testament that this prophecy from Zechariah 12 in this passage gets quoted again. John, the author of this gospel, is the one that quotes it. He doesn't quote it in any of his letters. He doesn't quote it in this gospel. He quotes it in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. There we're told, Revelation 1-7, Behold, He, that's Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail. They're not wailing in deep contrition and repentance that would lead to forgiveness and life, they're wailing in deep regret that judgment has come and salvation can no longer be found. John wants us to see what he saw at the cross of Christ, to see in the real death of Jesus the fulfilment of God's redemptive plans to save sinners like us, to receive his testimony now, to believe that he is telling the truth now to receive forgiveness and life through the death of Jesus now that's the first implication secondly finally the implication of the death of Jesus as we think about our death I know that figures like 190,775 or 15,000 898 or 3,669 or 523 or 22 can feel overwhelming. And the thought of cannons going off every about 2 minutes and 40 seconds isn't really that inspiring. So I have one final figure for you. One. There is one Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One true and better Passover lamb who was sacrificed so that we might be redeemed not from Egyptian slavery into the promised land of Canaan, but from our slavery to Satan's sin and death and delivered into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. One good shepherd whose side was pierced so that a floodgate of grace and mercy and forgiveness and cleansing would be opened. One God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. One fulfiller of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. One saviour who not only died in victory but who was raised in victory and will return to rise, raise the dead and wipe every tear from our eyes and usher in a whole new world where death will never separate us. Maybe you know one or two, or maybe even more, 
of the 190,775 people that died in Australia last year. But the truth is, none of their deaths has any implications for your death. But this death does. I'm pretty sure most of you will know that Amazing Grace was written by a guy called John Newton. What you may not know is that he was famous not just for writing hymns, he was also famous for writing letters. He wrote thousands of them uh, to friends, to family members, to pastors, to uh, parishioners, to, to missionaries. But there was one guy who he wrote to for over 30 years, a young guy, Baptist minister named John Ryland. They first met at Olney in 1768. Ryland was just 15 years old at the time. He's 25 years younger than Newton. But despite that fact, in time, they would become the best of friends. They wrote each other back and forth throughout their entire lives. On March the 26th, 1791, Newton's wife of over 40 years, Mary, had just died. So he wrote to his good friend, Ryland. Here's the closing paragraph from the letter. I want you to listen. Just notice how the death of Jesus shapes the way Newton thinks about everything. I hope my trial has not been wholly lost upon me. I am willing to live while the Lord pleases, for I am His and not my own. Independent of His will, I see little worth living for. I hope from henceforth that I shall be a pilgrim and a stranger upon the earth. The world is too poor to repair my loss. It is a wound which can only be effectually healed by Him that made it. And faithful indeed are the friends of, uh, wounds of such a friend. But what is the death of a fellow worm, however beloved, compared to the death of Jesus? This is the thought, which ought to wean us from the world and crucify us unto it, and indeed which alone is sufficient for the purpose. May we die daily, and may we live forever. Have you ever noticed how Newton, in his most famous hymn, invites us to imagine what our world's, what the world will look like, not one week after you've died, but 10,000 years into eternity. You ever notice that? Not in some Freudian, futile, deluded denial about the reality of your death, but with a faith-fueled hope that's anchored in the grace of God and the finished saving work of Jesus. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.